we are, uh, as I mentioned, uh, looking at the stories that Jesus told. Uh, we've been doing this all semester long. And we started uh, with a story uh, about a sower who sowed good seed in his field. Uh, but in the dark of night, an enemy sowed weeds uh, among the wheat. All right, asking this question, if God made a good world, why is it so messed up? You know, why does it look the way that it does? Following that, we tackled questions like, if God made a good world, why is it messed up? What is God doing about it? What is God doing to, to fix it, to save it, to restore it? And then lastly, uh, or what we saw last week, how can I be a part of what God is doing? In some ways, we're turning uh, a corner uh, and seeing, you know, what does it mean for us to be a part uh, of God's redemptive work uh, in the world? We learned last week that humility uh, is the doorway uh, into God's kingdom, right? You want in, you want to be a part of what God is doing, well, then you got to get low. Uh, we don't get in uh, by being good, right? We get in because God is good, because he is gracious, uh, the way that the Bible talks about this is that salvation is by grace, right? Salvation is by faith. Uh, it's not because of our works. Uh, we don't come to God with um, uh, our resume, our full resume, and a list of all the things that we did over the summer, right? And all the trophies that we won, right? We come to God empty-handed. And because we come to him empty-handed, empty-handed, we're able to receive what he has to offer us, which is nothing less than the perfection of Jesus, uh, when we come to him with our arms full, we can't receive, right? But when we come to him, when we let that all go, say, this is stupid, let it go, you come to him empty-handed, well, gosh, you're able to receive, right? As we said last week too, right, this is the easiest and the hardest thing to do. It's the easiest, hardest thing to do, to become a Christian, right? It's so easy because all you need is need, right? All you have to do is admit, I need help, right? To cry out for mercy. But this is hard too, isn't it? Because that means that we have to swallow our pride. It means that uh, we're all on a level playing field. There's no first class and second class citizens here, right? Everybody is equal. We all are sick, right? We all need God's grace. We all need healing. Uh, one of the ways that this is put, um, there's a, a pastor, he's now deceased. His name was Jack Miller. Uh, he used to say famously, cheer up. You're a whole lot worse than you think you are, but you're more loved than you ever imagined. Right? Cheer up. You're worse than you think you are, but you're more loved than you ever imagined. And that's the gospel. Well, if humility is the doorway into God's kingdom, what does it mean for us to live on the other side of that door? Okay, that's really is going to be the focus of this week and the next few weeks as we look at the stories Jesus tells. If humility is the doorway into God's kingdom, what does it mean for us to live on the other side of the door? And in today's story, the story that Jesus tells, he shows us that living in God's kingdom means loving others even when it costs you. Loving others even when it costs you. Um, let's go ahead and we'll read the passage. This is a famous story. Uh, the story of the Good Samaritan, and it's found on Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. Uh, if you all want, there's some copies over here uh, on that sheet. Uh, you can use it to make notes on. But I'll read. And behold, uh, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, or Rabbi, uh, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? 
And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by uh, on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Well, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Hey, let's pray. Father, thank you for gathering us together in this place. Thank you for giving us your son. Thank you for giving us uh, your word. And, and we cry out now for your spirit to help us to understand what it is exactly you want us to know and to understand and to do uh, as a consequence of hearing this story. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. Well, the outline for tonight's sermon is relatively simple. Just two points. Okay, What does love look like in action? And secondly, where are we going to get the strength to love like this? What does love look like in action? And secondly, where are we going to get the strength uh, to love like this? First of all, what does love look like in action? The first thing I want you to see from this story is that love comes close. Okay, love comes close. Another way of putting this is love doesn't keep its distance. It's not detached. Right? Love gets involved. Notice that in the story there are three characters who come upon the, uh, the beat-up man. Right, left for dead by the side of the road. All three characters in the story see him. They all see him. Right? But what they do very different things with that knowledge. The priest sees this beat-up man, and he moves to the other side of the road and continues on his journey. The Levite sees him, and he comes to the place. Right? He gets a little bit closer than the other, but he too right, proceeds uh, on his journey on the other side of the road. The Samaritan, however, sees the man, and the text says, right, comes to him. Okay, he is the only one who moves towards him. All of them see, but only one of them loves. Only one of them gets close. Only one is willing to do something about, uh, do something, uh, about what he sees. When it says that Samaritan had compassion on him, it's not just talking about an emotion, right? Love is not simply a feeling. Love is action. It's expressed uh, in acts of compassion, in binding up wounds, uh, bringing this man to safety, paying his bills. 
this summer, um, in June, uh, I had the opportunity to go on a really long bike ride. Alan just did one, a big bike ride to Montreal. Uh, I've yet to hear the story. It sounds like it was a, quite an adventure. This one was also an adventure. Um, we can probably hash out whose is more adventurous. But the ride, the ride I did was called Ride the Rockies. It was six days of bike riding in Colorado. We rode 400-something miles uh, from Carbondale to Fort Collins, and we climbed like 30,000 feet. I mean, it was a huge, epic uh, adventure. Uh, on day two of this bike ride, we had something like 85 miles to go that day. It was a long day, probably the hardest day of the ride. Uh, and started off the day, it was great. Um, I had bike strong all day, and it was probably near the middle of the pack. <laughs> There's a lot of strong riders there. Um, but around mile 70, with only 15 miles to go, uh, I was riding next to a friend named Pat. And uh, while I was biking next to Pat, I reached down uh, for my water bottle, which is something that I have done a thousand times. I mean, it's, it, it's not technical at all, right? Like, we've all done this. I reached down for my water bottle, but I lose control a little bit of the front of my bike, and my front tire hits Pat's back tire, and I go sideways. I lose control of the bike, and I go into the side of the road and into, like, a gravelly, like, ditch. I stand up and my side is hurting really bad. I've got scrapes all up on my side. I've got really bad road rash, rocks inside of these cuts. And I move to the bike and um, it is completely damaged. Uh, the derailleur, which helps you shift gears uh, and kind of holds the chain, it had been knocked completely off the bike. Um, it seemed like my ride had it certainly for the day and maybe for the entire like week had just come to like an abrupt end. There I was, right? Bike broken, derailleur shorn right off. Pat was fine. He didn't get hurt at all. Uh, he stopped with me and he said, I'm going to go up to the Fremont Pass, which is what we were, what we were climbing. And I'm going to call and see if I can get somebody to come down and help you, like pick you up and pick up your bike. So there I was, right? Broken, beat up me <laughs> Right by the side of the road uh, here in Colorado uh, with a broken bike. Uh, sure enough, it wasn't long uh, before a pack of riders came uh, and biked past the, pl uh, the place where I was standing or sitting. And this was a strong group of riders that came and they had their heads down, their helmets down, and they just sped past. Sort of shot me a side glance, but just kept on going. Another sort of group of riders came and, and one of the riders in that group, he sort of looked up, he took notice of me, uh, and he called. He said, are you okay? But he didn't slow down one bit. He wasn't, he wasn't slow enough to hear me say no. <laughs> right? I'm not okay, right? He, it was a courtesy, right? Are you okay? As he just kept in, uh, going on and speeding on his way. Another guy, uh, another girl came up. They biked. They came to the place where I was, but they saw me, the broken bike, and said, dude, that sucks. Uh, and they just, they didn't get off their bike. They just kept on going. It wasn't until about 30 minutes later when my friend Sam came uh, up to, to where I was. He saw me, he saw the broken bike, and he did something that nobody else did. He got off his bike. Right? And he moved in close. And he put his arm around me, said, are you okay? 
and he surveyed the bike with me and saw uh, the damage that had been done. Uh, and then Sam and I just sat in the dust for a while, waiting for a support vehicle to come and pick us up. But when the support vehicle came, Sam did something completely unexpected. As we were loading up the bikes, or, or my bike, uh, onto the support vehicle, he, he turned to me and he said, John, I've ridden this stretch of road before. You know, I've done this. Uh, I want you to do it. I want you to finish the day's ride. So here, take my bike. I'll, take, I'll, I'll ride in the support vehicle. I'll take your broken bike, and I'll, I'll take it into town, and I will meet you there. But you have my perfectly good bike, and you finish the day's ride. My friend Sam, right, the goods, we, we joked, right, the good Samaritan, right? he demonstrated to me that love comes close and doesn't pass on by. He got involved. But that is not all, right? He, Sam showed me, and this story shows us, that love is also costly. Love not only gets close, but love is also costly. For my friend Sam, loving me cost him his time. Like he had to slow down. He had to get off his bike. He had to stop. And in a sport like cycling, where it's all about time and your heart rate and your cadence, right? That's a big deal, right? Uh, a lot of people will bike with this thing called Strava, which tracks your time and who's the fastest on this certain section of road. It's very competitive. And sometimes it feels that life is like that, right? Life is like cycling. It is fast-paced and it is competitive. And, uh, but if you're going to love, sometimes you, it means that you have to slow down and you have to get off. And it costs you your time. For me, or for Sam, right, loving me in that moment was a selfless act. Right? He couldn't just be thinking about himself and how fast he was going to go or who he was going to beat out that day for that section of road. Loving me didn't just cost Sam his time. It, right? it's, it didn't just screw with his schedule. It impacted him in other ways too, as surely as it did the Good Samaritan uh, that day. Right? It cost him his convenience, it cost him his comfort, and it cost him his ride. Right? I gave Sam my broken bike, and he gave me his perfectly good one. For the Good Samaritan in our story today, he sacrificed his ride too. It, it, to love the beat-up man meant sacrificing comfort and convenience. Look at verse 34. Okay, the Good Samaritan went to the beat-up man, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. See, so the good Samaritan put the unconscious, naked man on his donkey, and then taking the form of a servant, he walked beside the animal, leading this beat-up man to an inn. Love cost him his time. Right? Love cost him his ride. But it affected him beyond that as well. This man, in order to love the beat-up man, the Good Samaritan, he ran the risk of the, the cost of love, right, could have cost him uh, physical harm. Right, there are still robbers in this area. Right, the robbers that beat up this man and, and took his clothes and his possessions and left him for dead, 
they were still there. Right? So to slow down and to attend to this man uh, was a risky thing. He ran the risk of love, uh, loving this man, it ran the risk of it costing him his reputation. If you've ever thought about this before, but what would people think of you if you showed up to a hotel dragging in a naked, beat-up person? What would people think of you if you showed up into this room dragging a naked, beat-up person into Living Learning Commons 216? People might think some strange things about you, right? But for this man, it didn't matter. He was willing to sacrifice his reputation to do the loving thing. What's more, loving this man cost him financially. He tells the the innkeeper, take care of him. Look at verse 35. He gives him two denarii, like two days wages. And he says, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Just charge it to my account. In the end, right, he took a hit. He took a financial hit. Like this journey that he was on, he lost money, right, because he loved this man. He wasn't going to get paid back for it. This was a gift. It wasn't a loan. What are some of the ways, um, what would this look like? What would love look look like here uh, in action at UVM as we consider the... uh, the come close nature of love and the costly nature of love. I've thought about that a lot this week. I've thought a lot about it today. Just a few examples that came to my mind. And I'm sure like if we sat together, you could add a lot more to it. And actually, I'd love to hear you. <laughs> Maybe if, uh, over coffee or lunch, tell me what you think. What does it love look like in action here at UVM? But consider your roommate, for example. Maybe your roommate comes home one day and is sad, uh, is depressed. Maybe he or she broke up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or just had a really hard time at home, uh, you know, at fall retreat or fall recess. You can tell that your roommate really needs a friend that night, but you've also made plans to grab pizza uh, with a bunch of other friends. Um, But what do you do? Like, do you decide to stay home that night because you know that your roommate needs you? Do you invite your roommate to go with you to pizza? Or do you say, just to hell with my roommate, I'm going to do what I want. And just go grab pizza with your friends like you had originally planned. What do you do in that situation when you see someone hurting and see someone in need? Dishes are piling up in your sink. Right? Maybe that same roommate like has screwed you again, right? They're not doing their job. Well, what are you going to do? Are you going to leave the dishes there and just, and just watch the mess and the pile get higher and higher? Are you going to say, this is not my responsibility? Or, or do you do the dishes quietly? Like, do you love sacrificially? One more sort of example that I could think of. You're a straight-A student, or maybe you're an A-B student. You're crushing it in this class. I mean, you're acing the homework, you're acing the quizzes, like you just, 
brought home almost a perfect score on the last test. But lots of the people in your class are struggling. What do you say? You're like, that's their problem. They just need to work harder. Or do you give of your time to help people who are struggling, uh, to tutor them, and to help them pass their class? What do you do? See, I think we all want to love, but we don't want it to cost us. Uh, we, want, um, we don't want loving uh, to affect us or to interrupt us or to get in the way or to change our schedule, right? We don't want love to slow us down. But friends, love does that. It always does that. If you want to love, you got to get in close. You got to get involved. It's very hard to love people from a distance and in a detached way. Love costs you. I think we say we want to love, but we, I think often, right, we just want to have the appearance of being loving. The facade, not the reality. Isn't that true? I know it's true for me sometimes. I don't actually, like, I can be so... Uh, impatient with interruptions or things that mess with my schedule which is just to say I want the appearance of being a loving person but I don't actually want to do the hard work the nitty gritty, slow down costly work of love and maybe you do too lastly love is a commitment Okay, for the good Samaritan this meant commitment to this person but it also meant commitment to his welfare right? their overall situation this man, the, the good Samaritan, he doesn't just see the beat up man, right? He moves towards him. And when he's towards him, he puts on oil and, and, and wine, and he, which is their equivalent of medicine. He's not making a salad, right? right? He's pouring on oil and wine, which were antiseptic, right? It was, a, it was a salve. But he doesn't just stop there, right? He, he could have. He could have just bound him up and just be like, okay, you're fine. But he doesn't do that, right? He takes the man, he puts him on his donkey, and he takes him out of, safe, or out, of, out of danger, and he brings him to a place of safety. But that's not all. He doesn't just leave him at the hotel, right? He pays his bills. And this is significant, because we know from other stories that Jesus tells, and just a little bit of homework about right, life in first century Palestine, we know that people could be imprisoned for bad debts. Obviously, this wounded man has nothing left. Everything has been taken from him. And as one commentator has pointed out, if the good Samaritan does not pledge to pay his final bill, whatever it comes to, the wounded man on recovery will not be able to leave. Essentially, he would become an indentured servant right at this hotel and be sort of a a form of bondage. So the Samaritan, when he says take care of him and whatever more you spend I will repay it when I come back it's to say that the good Samaritan was committed to him not just his present troubles, his present woes but concerned about his future welfare he's committed he he wanted to enable him to escape to get out of bondage right, concerned with his present but concerned with his future too and that's true of love as well right 
if this is what love is like, we're asking, what does love look like in action? And Jesus says, love is, means to come in close, means to get involved. Right? Love is costly and love is commitment. Commitment to people, commitment to their present needs, but also thinking about their future. Well, the next question is this. If this is what love is like, if this is what we're being called to, where are we going to get the strength or the resources to love like this? That's a good question, right? If this is what we're called to, if this is what love looks like, where are we going to get the strength to love like this? I want you to cast your eyes to the very top uh, and note the context here. Okay, this passage begins with a lawyer who's putting Jesus to the test. He asks Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We could just paraphrase that. How do I get into heaven? What do I need to do? Or as we've been asking, how do I be a part of what you're doing? He's trying... If you look at verse 29, it says that he's trying to justify himself. He's trying to prove his worthiness. He's trying to say, I've met the grade, right? I'm good enough. I'm righteous. So when he asks Jesus this question, who is my neighbor? He's expecting Jesus to say to him, your neighbor is your family. Your neighbor is your friends. Your neighbor are the people you live next to. Right, the people that you're naturally close with. And in his mind, he's thinking, this is easy. I've been doing this my whole life. And he's expecting Jesus to say, yeah, I know. You're awesome. Like, you're, you're crushing it. You've made it. You're a winner. And then, perhaps, he imagines the ticker tape falling from the sky. And Jesus doing the double thumbs up. You know, the crowd roaring with approval as he sort of waves like the queen, you know, goodbye and fades into the distance, you know, with everybody throwing him a party. That's probably not far off from what he's expecting this whole exchange is going to go like, right? But of course, that's not what happens. Jesus instead tells him a story. And Jesus demonstrates in the story that your neighbor is every man. The beat-up man is not named he is knocked unconscious, and he's stripped naked. And this is not insignificant, because we are able to identify strangers in a variety of ways. We can ask them, "What's your name?" Like we, but we don't know his name. We often rely on speech and dress uh, to identify strangers, but this man he cannot speak because he's knocked unconscious, and we don't know what his dress is because he's been stripped naked. Which is just to say, the man by the side of the road has been reduced to a mere human being in need. We don't know his identity. We don't know his religion, his ethnicity, his native language. We don't know his politics. We don't know his economics. We don't know his class. All we see before us is a mere human being in need. And this is who the Samaritan helps. This is who the Samaritan loves. With no qualifications. It's not like, oh, you're one of my tribe. 
Uh-uh. He doesn't know. For all he knows, this could be one of his enemies. Right? No conditions. He just sees someone in need and he helps. That, Jesus says, is how we ought to love. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? Right? And he answers, right, the one who showed him mercy. Right? This is how we're supposed to love. Like, we're not just to love our family and our friends. We're not just to love when it's easy or convenient for us. We're to love every man. Right? We're to love every woman. We're even to love our enemies. And we're to do this when it's costly. Of course, this is not what the lawyer had in mind. He thought loving his neighbors was easy. But he's seeing now that it is insanely hard. I can't do this. I haven't been doing this. I have not been loving like this. If this is what love is, right? if this is the standard to which I've been called, I'm failing. Far from winning, I'm losing. Right? Help me. That is exactly the point that Jesus is driving to the man who's trying to justify himself. This is the standard. This is what it really means to love. But you and I are falling short. This is the passing grade, and you and I are failing. We cannot justify ourselves, and our attempts to do so are bound to failure. You know, in a lot of ways, we are, when we try to justify ourselves, when we try to earn our salvation, it's like we're trying to build a ladder into heaven. But our, even the best builders amongst us, our ladders can only go so high. They don't reach the top. We don't get in. If it's on our own, we do not get in. But here's the good news. Even though our ladders do not reach, God is willing to come down low. He's, ready, he's willing to come down to our level. And he says, if you want in, you've got to enter into this door, this low door. But here's the thing. You can't enter with you and your ladder. There's only room for you, right? Your ladder won't fit. Which means you've got to leave it behind. This is the easy, hard thing to do, isn't it? You've got to let go of your resume. You've got to stop trying to impress people. You've got to stop trying to impress God. You've got to stop trying to win your salvation on your own. You gotta stop boasting. And you need to admit that you cannot save yourself, that you are weak, that you are broken, that you're not well. And you need to call out for grace. You need to call out for mercy. All you need is need, right? All you need is Jesus. The good news is that Jesus is saying, I'm right here for you. Everything you need, I'm willing to give you and to give it to you for free. It's easy and it's hard. Perhaps you're saying, well, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to receive. I'm willing to humble myself. I want to go in through the low door. Once I go through that low door, once I humble myself and I become a Christian, is it possible for me to love like this? Like, does this standard just crush me? Does it just show me my need for Jesus? 
Or is this something I can actually begin to practice? Is it something that I can actually do? And I want you to hear there's hope for you. This is something that you can begin, right, to work into your life. Jesus wants you to love like this. This is what we've been made for. We were made in the image of God for the sake of imaging God, made in the image of a God of love so that we would be loving, right? This is what it means to be human, right, to love like this. And by giving us his spirit, by giving us his word, Jesus is enabling us. He's giving us power to begin to love like this. But of course, friends, we're not going to do it perfectly and certainly not going to do it perfectly right off the bat. But just because we don't do it perfectly doesn't mean we shouldn't try. You know, it would be silly to say, just because I can't play the piano perfectly, just because I can't, be like, I, I can't play the piano like Mozart, why bother? That's silly. Even though you can't play the piano like Mozart, doesn't mean that your piano playing can't be beautiful. It can be, right? And in the same way, just because you can't do this perfectly doesn't mean you shouldn't strive for it. Like playing this, like uh, allowing God to play the keys of love with your life would be a beautiful sound. It would be musical. You know, when Jesus says, follow me, he certainly suspected and expected rather, uh, that we would watch him and we would begin to follow his lead, even if those steps are shaky ones, right? even if our steps are baby steps. Our Father's pleased right, to see us try. As I've said with some of you, and, and this is an image that really resonates with me now because I'm teaching Willa how to walk, but no father is disappointed as he watches his child try to take these initial first steps. They fall down all the time. Like, they don't get very far. They're not good at walking. But no father is like, you suck, <laughs> right? What's the matter with you? It's just like this. Move your arms, move your legs. Like, nobody's like that, right? On the contrary, the father gets out the video camera, holds out the iPhone, and is filming it and sending it to family and friends and be like, you won't believe what Willa did today. You won't believe what Wei King did today, right? You won't believe what Josh accomplished. He's walking. He's learning how to walk. Friends, you're not going to do it perfectly, especially not at the beginning, but we ought to try. Jesus is proud of you. He's, metaphorically speaking, filming it and sharing it with all his friends and family. It's good stuff. Here's the thing, and this is the order of things. If you want to love like this, First of all, you need to realize that you've been loved like this. This is critical. The true order of things, the true order of the gospel, is that if you want to love like this, you need to realize, first of all, I've been loved like this. Uh, as a friend and a mentor of mine uh, tells me and has told me often, uh, you cannot give away what you don't possess. You can't give away what you don't possess. Which is to say, if you want to love like Jesus, if you want to love well, you need to know that you've been loved by Jesus and that you've been loved well. Before you can love like this, you need to see, first of all, that you are the poor, beat-up, broken man who's by the side of the road. 
You need to see yourself, first of all, as the broken, naked sinner, as the one who desperately needs help, as the person who is in desperate need for mercy, who needs rescue, to see that man is me. And then after doing that, to recognize that Jesus, Jesus is truly the good Samaritan. He is the one who has moved in close. Jesus did not keep his distance. He did not see our suffering and cross by on the other side, but he sees it and he leaves heaven and he comes to earth and he gets in close and he gets down at our level and he pours on the oil and he pours on the wine. He heals up, he binds up the brokenhearted. By his wounds, we are healed, right? The Bible says. He is the one who is not just gotten in close, but Jesus is the one who's loved me no matter what the cost. He loved me even though it cost him his own life, right? Even though he went to the cross, as we saw. Jesus is the one who is committed to me, who doesn't just care about my present, but also cares about my future. You know, when you recognize that you are the needy one and Jesus is the good Samaritan, when you recognize that, oh my gosh, I've been loved deeply in this way. Like, I'm not just the giver of this kind of love. First of all, I'm the receiver of this kind of love. Then you can begin to love like this. You will begin to love others not out of a place of weakness, not out of a place of, I need to get something, but you will be loving people out of a place of strength, out of a place of fullness. You will be loving others, not in order to get, but in order to give, in order to share, in order to bless. My friends, when you realize that you've been loved like this by a good Samaritan like Jesus, then you can begin to love. And once you have received it, then you are in a position to give it away, right? To share it and to bless. This really is the fuel that drives the Christian car. Let's pray.